Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Hunter Quinn. Hello, Darren. How are you? I'm good. I'm surviving this pandemic. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very well, indeed. I'm, um, I'm doing what you do. I'm just giving kind of a generic uh, response. I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. <laughs> it's great. There's a soundboard of Darren's emotional range. It's quite impressive. It goes all the way yeah. from... Grand. It's just a button. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you can push it three times in quick succession if you want. Uh, but yes, we are here on this week on the podcast discussing Xavier Dolan's 2014 Cannes Jury Prize co-winner, international success story, 1.1 aspect ratio domestic drama slash science fiction dystopian future film, Mummy. A new entry on the 250 back in February, where it stayed for a couple of days, it dropped off, came back in in March, and has been kind of circling around the bottom of the 250 for quite some time. And to join us for this discussion, uh, we've invited on two guests, two experts in French and world cinema, two people who I know have a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around Xavier Dolan. Um, so, first of all, Mr. Phil Bagnell, how are you, Phil? Good evening. Or whatever time of the day you happen to be listening to this podcast. I've got wine, it's um, definitely evening. But yes. Hey. It absolutely is. Um, uh, and also joining us, we have Ronan Doyle. How are you, Ronan? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? So with the pandemic happening at the moment, with a lot of listeners kind of cocooning, uh, self-isolating and quarantining, you know, there's a sense of a lot of people being kind of trapped at home, being locked in a familiar space, staring at the same four walls and maybe the same screen over and over again. So one of the things we want is to a do- themed episode, a rare, a rare themed episode. <laughs> Um, we we were, we we knew we knew from our iTunes review that people really hated the 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 random episode generator the the random movie generator. So so we decided to make every episode a themed episode. So this week um, is no different. We're doing something a little different. No, well, we decided that, like, in this time of quarantine, in this time of pandemic, a lot of people trapped in kind of familiar spaces and in their kind of rooms and houses and stuff like that. What we try to do is we try to bring the world to our listeners. So we're kind of embracing a little bit of international cinema, bringing a little bit of international flavor, particularly international films that happen to be on the list. And in this case, we thought we'd do Xavier Dolan's Mummy, uh, because it's a very interesting film in terms of the list. It's a very, it's a domestic drama. It's a French movie. It's a film from 2014 that only came into the list in early 2020 and so i kind of have to ask had you guys seen this before um and when did you see it and what was your first response to it uh, yes i do i saw it at the london film festival uh back in 2014 and oh, wow. um yeah uh it, a very happy uh screening because um well one it was the press screening and everybody seemed really to enjoy it and later in the day i actually got to do a red carpet with xavier dola and his producer so yeah, it was great, um, and uh, I just remember seeing the film and really loving it, just enjoying its emotional intensity, the vibrancy of its direction, and um, yeah, I as much as I liked it though, watching it for this podcast was the first time I'd seen it since. Um, 
and I was happy to find that it still held up. Um, how, yeah. how, this is a real question, Phil. How many times did you watch it this time? <laughs> that may like, or may not three, be to somebody. Three, four? No, just one. Just one. <laughs> it's one. Wow. Yeah. What about you, Darren? But uh, actually, Phil, actually, just while we're over there, because you mentioned Dolan, because Dolan's an interesting director to talk about in this context. I like, um, I like who he's obviously is a French. I like how this conversation, though, he's Irish. He's Dolan. See, uh, Xavier Dolan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's nephew. <laughs> we've we've been told to not to do the accents. Our producers have told us not to do accents. <laughs> do the um, accents. And we're trying to adhere to that. Um, but Dolan is, is an interesting director, actually, in a number of respects, because he was fen- he's a phenomenally young director. At least he started now as a young director. He began as an actor and voiceover artist. Uh, in fact, actually, he's still a voiceover artist uh, for certain French recordings. Wasn't he like a child actor? He was indeed, yep. Yeah, and, and for voiceover work on Pixar films in France, for example, he was the voice of Stan uh, in the French version of South Park, uh, to give another example. He voiced Fear in the version of Inside really? Out. Yeah, he voiced, I think, Nemo in Finding Nemo uh, in the French dub of it as well. He was in the Harry Potters, if I'm, not, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, and he was also in the Twilight movies, barring the last one. He was the voice of Jacob in the dub as well. Um, so that I guess you know we're all on Team Jacob tonight, actually, to bring us all back to the early two thousand. Well, that, that's weird. Like, like in, Inside Out is a relatively recent movie, and 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 it's not like he was doing. It's it's not like it was that early into pre production that he would be doing that either. Because mm. presumably they'd have to make the movie first and then do the French dub, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, he still acts. He's like he's notably he had a, a small role in It Chapter Two uh, late last year. Dolan famously described the original It as his favorite movie of 2017, and so which is an int- uh. yeah, an interesting choice. Phil literally choked on his wine it's at that remark. Fine. He didn't pick Twin Peaks to return as his favorite movie of 2017. Surprising, absolutely nobody. No, Andrew, no, he didn't. But yeah, he described It as his favorite film uh, and basically managed to wrangle his way into a small role in the opening scene of it chapter two as well so he still he still acts on occasion um even though he's best known now as a writer and director i expect it's quite handy to bring in the money to uh, to be able to fund his direction yeah um and actually his direction is kind of interesting as well because he's was phenomenally prolific um this mommy that we're talking about from 2014 film a year that's it exactly um his fourth film uh, released at the age of 24 there's a word um, his first this. film uh, or his first precocious Prolific. (laughs) I'm going to say it at the same time. Prodigious. Um, (laughs) Different P word. It was his fifth, wasn't it? Was it his fifth? Okay, I thought that... Yeah, it is. I think so, yeah, yeah. His his first film, which is I Have Killed My Mother, um, also premiered at Cannes. That premiered in the director's fortnight, um, which was quite an accomplishment as well. This mummy is seen as a kind of... When he was 20, I believe. Yes, uh, which is again incredibly like as a, as a as a performer, incredibly or as a, as a director, an incredible breakthrough. This was made when he was twenty four, twenty five. Screened in Cannes, his first film to screen in competition at Cannes at the age of twenty four and twenty five, but also went on to win the jury prize, which it shared with Jean Luc Godard's um, the was a farewell to language by the language as well, which I saw at the same London Film Festival and uh, two more different films. Hmm. Although at the same time, you can kind of see similarities. Anyway, the point is, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, there's a precociousness to both those films and both those filmmakers. 
Um, but Ronan, actually, because I, I I thought of you when we picked this film as well, uh, because I know that you're kind of big into world cinema. You're a man with very refined taste. And when I heard Xavier Dolan, I know Xavier Dolan is a, is, a, is generally regarded as one of the you know most prestigious international filmmakers, a great talent to watch. Sure. Um, and I asked you, um, had you seen it before? And had you seen Mummy before this podcast? I hadn't at that point, no. So it's kind of surprising that I hadn't in some respect. I had been a big fan of his at different points. Uh, I Killed My Mother, you were mentioning about him. I, I really, really like it. So I think it's a very good debut film. A lot of kind of trappings of um, sort of over-ambitious, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in a debut film. It's, you know, very, it's extremely vibrant. It's It's got its problems, but I think it's a really, really good, interesting film. Wasn't a huge fan of his second one, but then his third and fourth, which are Lawrence Anyways and Tom of the Farm, I think are an incredible kind of back-to-back back uh you know um maturing in a way uh they still have that that flamboyance that characterizes a lot of the style but they they were real breakthroughs so um i i I, i'm not quite sure why i missed mommy at the time to be honest if i didn't make it to the cinema or got a limited release here or whatever the case may have been i I definitely wasn't in any festivals where it showed but yeah i um i I only watched it for the first time in the run-up to this despite being a big fan no i've i've kind of fallen out of love with him in between, because his his latest film, uh, Matthias and Maxime, which hasn't released here yet, but it's had some festival showings, I have seen, and I mm. really didn't like the it. reviews on that have been uh, mixed yeah. uh, at best, but uh, they're still better than the reviews for the film before that, The Life and Death of John F. Donovan, <laughs> which is yes, the, that's what I was the two ask. before that. He said, he oh, said two well, clunkers, which I well, haven't seen either. I haven't seen John F. Donovan either, but it's he's, it's his biggest cast, big international cast. And it is supposed to be absolutely horrendous uh, to the point that it actually hasn't been released in this part of the world yet. Yeah, nobody seems to be defending that one. No. And prior to that, he made It's Only the End of the World, uh, which uh, also had, which had a pretty big uh, francophone cast. I mean, he got yeah. Marion Cotillard, Vincent Cassel, Lea Seydoux. And um, I saw that at a festival setting as well. And uh, it's dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. <laughs> it's, it's nearly two hours of fine French actors shrieking at each other. It's... Mm. Uh, a, a massive disappointment because as you say um, his work up to that point um, has been really striking you, Tom at the Farm I think is extraordinary I mean, yeah Tom at the Farm is incredible I, I've always I mean people say it's Hitchcocky and I always say more precisely it's Strangers at this, it's Strangers on a Train with less trains and more gay sex um, <laughs> but it is an absolute there's a tagline it's a phenomenal <laughs> film though <laughs> And uh, yeah. and that was how Phil ended up on the DVD cover. <laughs> uh, hey, why not? I, there's a lot of people who would be sold on that line. Prove me wrong. But I think, Darren, you were, you were mentioning there that um, Mommy, to some extent, uh, reworked some themes from his first film. I think it's really interesting to come to this having seen his previous stuff, because if you haven't, I, I don't think you're going to necessarily fall behind by any means. But there's a lot of stuff in his back catalogue that informs the way that you might watch this, and certainly the way that I did watch this. There's a lot of a lot of themes that are reflected back on in terms of mother-son relationships, um, but also a lot of the technical aspects of his work. The um, absolutely the aspect ratio is an is a part of Tom of the Farm. Tom of the Farm kind of famously at the time had a shifting aspect ratio, so in certain scenes the the bones of the frame would extend. It, he's always been quite playful with that, so that's that's another thing that feeds into watching Mommy from my perspective anyway. And it is, it is worth noting, actually, just in terms of that, the, the reason probably why I said that this was fourth as opposed to fifth is because 
he was so prolific that Tom of the Farm didn't actually have distribution at the time that Mummy was working the festival circuit and generating the international release, which gives you a sense of how prolific he was. And in terms of this, in terms of the context of his body of work, uh, famously, Jessica Chastain saw this movie at Cannes and decided that she was going to work with him on his English language project, which went on to be The Life and Death of John F. Donovan, um, starring Kit Harrington, uh, which managed to derail Kit Harrington's career slightly as well, uh, and which maybe <laughs> kind of provides a nice sense... Uh, nice sense of bridging there within the it shared universe as well. Uh, but in terms of Do- Dolan's work, actually, because because Mummy is arguably kind of important in this context because it's it's probably his breakout hit. Notably, it has screened. It's available to stream at the moment if you're in the UK and Ireland on Amazon Prime. Uh, but it's also been notably available to stream on uh, Netflix um, as well, where it garnered large following and large investment as well, and also generated some share of controversy. Um, it was at the cornerstone of. Ronan mentioned the shifting aspect ratio. One of the defining features of of Mummy, and we're going to talk about it in more depth later on, is the one-for-one aspect ratio that Dolan uses to shoot it. And there's reasons why he did it, reasons, choices that he makes in doing it. But like when this film was on Netflix, they very famously uh, cropped it in order to get it into the traditional widescreen ratio. And so in 2016, it became kind of a cornerstone of one of those battles as well. So it's kind of an interesting film in that respect as well. Oh, no, I was just going to say the fact that it was available on Netflix may help to explain how it got to the 250. Yeah. I mean, it being so readily available. Because it's... it's... Like, it's a film that... I mean, notably, it is... It was... For, no, uh, Nolan. Dolan. Damn it, Andrew. Or Darren. <laughs> All the names! Christ! Um, notably, this was his first financial success. Uh, all the other, all his films up to that point, they got a certain amount of critical success, but this was by far the most successful at the box office. Um, so then, like you say, went to Netflix. So the fact that it just became so accessible, there is something, there is something quite nice, quite pleasant about seeing it reaching a wide enough audience that it got to something as popular as the IMDb Top 250 and populist dare I say yes and was that just like Canadian Netflix or uh, American Netflix because I would imagine US and Canada I, I yeah yeah it's not on Irish Netflix I didn't spend two ninety nine for something I could have watched on Netflix <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, it is worth noting, actually. Um, Phil noted that that kind of populism around the film as well. It's worth noting that it's also you could argue there was a slight backlash to Dolan as well because I went back through the archives into the time machine to take a look at what critics thought of it, and generally there was a perception that like 2014 was a weak year at Cannes, allowing for things like a goodbye to language and allowing for things like the Clouds of Silmaria, I think as well, uh, which Phil I know I is a big love fan that of. film. Um, well, it 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 had a lot of um, there there were there were um, a lot of a lot of people became worried about. Um, Stephen Harper um, uh, being uh, returned as an incumbent in the in the twenty fifteen um, Canadian federal elections, so um, came out in their droves and uh, and voted for Justin Trudeau. Like the, the, this the, this is a very influential historical movie, really. Um, so, so what you're saying is, Mommy is responsible for getting Trudeau elected. Yeah, people were worried and, and about Trudeau the... brought in the S14 law. <laughs> Damn it! No, no, that's the Stephen Harper AU. That's the, the <laughs> alternate universe. How things might have gone yeah. uh, if that election had gone just a little differently. Although interesting to note uh, that um, 
what since you mentioned uh, the the Cannes Film Festival, the winner that year was uh, Winter Sleep, which is also on the two fifty. Yes, um, and popping in as out as well. And I think you want to talk about that at some point when we get oh, a chance most to definitely. as well. I think you've sort of... Um, so take that, the perception of that as a week year at Cannes. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's kind of interesting to read back and look at the kind of Savage, to, to in particular from... You're, you're just saying the, the unsayable. Um, uh, attacking the perception of that as a bad year at Cannes. Uh, like a shocking disjunct. I'm going I'm to argue against that personally because I'm I'm actually looking at the list of films that were nominated that year right now, and as far as I can see, that was a hell of a year. You had Winter Sleep and Mommy, Clouds of Sils Maria, Goodbye to Language, Foxcatcher, Leviathan, Maps of the Stars, Mr. Turner, um, Timbuktu, Two Days, One Night, The Holmes Man. I'm sorry, but I love all of those films, so any perceptions that it's a weak year can go hump. Um, to be honest, I think every year is considered a weak year. At, at the end this of every year, you have that discussion, um, and it's basically yeah, it's never as good as it, as it used to be or as it was. So, but it's it's kind of just to get back to what I was talking about there, just about mummy and the perception of mummy. There's this kind of when you are you saying mummy or mummy? Thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to bring that up, but mummy, mummy. <laughs> that whirling sound is al jolts right. spinning in his grave <laughs> but no I, I fine what i was going to say was this idea of the movie that we're talking about which has a name that is a synonym for mother <laughs> Um, it was generally regarded it was kind of like a light critical backlash to it you had discussions people like Richard Brody describing it as Dolan's own pseudo transgressive artistic tantrum you had Scott Tobias accusing Dolan of inhaling the fragrance of his own artistry you had A.O. Scott <laughs> describing line. it as a certain <laughs> I know I, that's that's primarily why I'm kind of like doing this I'd read that line I was like I have to find a way to work that in <laughs> and A.O. Scott describing it as a sur decor for the selfie generation as well is, is it suggesting that he arted in his own hand and then smelled it is, it, is, is that yes I think that's what's being suggested <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for that mental image Andrew but no it's, it's kind of interesting in terms of I think that's the flip side of what Phil was describing of the populist success yeah. the fact it was a box office success the fact that it went to Netflix the fact that it went to Amazon Prime and the fact that it is a film that is kind of like widely loved mm. if you don't get on the 250 without having a very strong support base around it without a lot of people seeing a lot of people loving it and even going online and searching and you know this week you had discussed people asking to name five favourite movies and I saw Xavier Dolan's Mummy coming up quite a few times in that discussion okay. so it's kind of interesting that you have that kind of almost, you know, well, it's popular, so it sucks now attitude kind of creeping in around certain discussions of Dolan's work at this point in his career. Uh, but before we go any further, um, we're going to ask three questions. Um, so, Ronan, to start us off, do you think that Xavier Dolan's Mummy belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I mean, I think probably not, no, uh, because it's not even among my favorite of his, if I'm honest. Um, we'll get into it in a lot more detail in a while, I expect, but I didn't love it by any means. Uh, I think it's really good. I think there's, there's a lot of good stuff there, but he's made, from my perspective, at least two films, which are better and probably deserve to be there instead. Ah. Are we going to, do you want to name which two those are or 
Do you want to keep us for me? Tom of the Firm. Tom of the Firm is absolutely incredible. I think Tom of the Firm is the best film he's made, and I'd be impressed if he makes a better one. Um, and potentially Lawrence, anyways, as well. Although I do need to revisit it. It's been a couple of years. Okay, so not I killed my mother. No, I think it's got it's got too many debut okay. problems. Really, okay. I do love it a lot. And then um, Phil, do you love your mummy? I love I love my mummy. But as for Xavier Dolan's mommy, um, do I think it belongs on the 250? No. Uh, I'm actually going to echo pretty much what Ron said. Um, I think Tom at the Farm is better. I have never actually finished Lawrence anyways. And I must do. It's nothing against the film. It's just, it's 160 minutes long. And I mean, that's... It's very long. That's one problem of Dolan's is that he's indulgent, mm-hmm. not just in his directorial sources, but also in the length of his films. So yeah. I definitely, I need to really watch that to be sure. But I think I prefer Tom at the Farm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think so, no. All right. And Andrew, what about yourself? So, given that we've, we've, we've recorded 178 podcasts and... and, and this will be episode number 184, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, given that we've now, uh, given that people um, have, have now listened to 184 of these everybody you hope you hope because yeah. um, you can't is, just jump in yeah which is a real indictment um <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, i want our fans to think about, sorry no. Um, uh, no i'm i i i listen to a lot of podcasts it's okay um no, uh, given that we that that we've recorded so many, um, and that so many of them have been on the two fifty and not on the bottom one hundred, I feel like this would be in the top half of of of, of movies that uh, we have covered, whether it kind of belongs in the two fifty or not. So, given that it's in the two fifty, and that it, I and that it's probably kind of um, up there in my mind. Um, uh, having watched all the movies we have, then yeah, I would say I'd, I'd say, I'd say for, I'd say for me, I'd say for me, it does belong. Over as he remembers all the time he spent watching these movies. <laughs> yeah. And like wistfully imagining a world where like Iannucci music is playing and the one by one frame kind of breaks and he doesn't have to go watch another movie tonight to talk about it on a podcast. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that, that, that's a good description of what is happening. Um, I was still like, yeah. yeah. Sort of, listeners can't see you, Andrew. By the way, no, <laughs> that was just train. for you guys. That was We're for all of the people who come to it's... see us live. Ooh, live podcasts! I like the um, sound of that. Yeah, on, guys, yeah. someday. And this someday. is yeah for for me. I'm not entirely sure that I'd, I'd put it on the 250 either. Um, we've talked about a couple of French films recently as part of this kind of world tour thing we're doing. We talked about The Wages of Fear. We talked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, and I think both of them are better films. I think both of them probably have a better argument in terms of here as well. One hundred percent. And I, you know, I don't want to say that I I dislike this film because I don't. I just think that yeah. Is it one of the 250 best movies ever made is a very high bar to pass. And I think that failing to pass it is not necessarily a condemnation of this movie uh, in particular. So second question then. So Ronan, would it be on your, and I suspect we've already answered this, but would it be on your own personal 250? So your 250 favorite films ever? No, not a chance. All right, uh, Phil. I doubt it. I enjoy it, but I doubt it. 
I was going to ask, actually, because you described seeing it in, you know, at the London Film Festival as an experience, as a memory that you cherish. It Coming back to it, was it exactly as good as it was? Did it Was some of the shine taken off? Um, you know, do you still associate it with that memory? I do. But, you know, that you know, that's a very subjective memory. So you try and take a film on its own merits. And it's still very, very good. Very watchable. Very enjoyable. But I just don't think it would be... Yeah, it's, I'd sooner recommend Tom at the Farm to people. That's all. All right. All right, then. And Andrew, what about yourself? Um, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be interested, based on some of the comments, to try out um, Tom at the Farm um, and see if I might like it more. Um, That's a win for us, Ronan. Yeah. I so, so, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd have it on my own um, two fifty, but I really did like it a lot. Um, when I think about some of the things that are not under under two fifteen, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe, maybe maybe it doesn't deserve to be. Um, but um, yeah, are we are we showing in our usual RoboCop reference now? <laughs> <laughs> that counts. That counts. That's that's the that's the um, obligatory RoboCop reference. Well done, Phil. Oh, there's a second obligatory RoboCop reference coming as well, then, because this is another dystopian future movie. Um, of course, it is. It's very much a RoboCop movie. They're very much like two peas in a pod. If you were to watch RoboCop and then watch Mommy back to back, they're like watching the same film. It's great. Uh, I don't yeah, even I have to reference heard. RoboCop anymore. Other people will do it for me. They both have quite a bit of Celine Dion in them, right? Yeah, exactly the same sort of thing. And I mean, you know, they're both sort of like you could you could argue that, you know, they're about being constrained. One character is constrained by a robot suit. The other character is constrained by an aspect ratio. But they're basically the same movie when you boil it down to it. Um, but yes, I would agree with uh, the other three guests on the podcast. And I would say, yeah, I, I don't think this is going to make my own personal 250. It's not necessarily the kind of movie that I gravitate towards, and we'll probably talk about that in a moment, where this is a movie, kind of movie that I am inherently skeptical of. And I think, you know, I kind of, I tend to approach, you know, certain movies like this with a, with a hearty degree of skepticism. I mean, it's uh, a bit I on the like nose, but it's also very... like a 24-year-old um, uh, making yes, that's it. exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, I mean and, and I... I don't know about you guys, but I really forgave it. Like, it's... Um, yeah. Um, like I, 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 I thought it, it, it was. Um, I found I've, I've, I, I, I tried to just kind of like um, expel any um, uh, cynicism, and it's difficult because like you, you, you feel it, and you're like, oh god, what is this? Um, but, but it like it, it is, it is touching even when it's very kind of. Um, Obvious, and I guess we'll talk about some of the 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 points where 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 it's not very subtle or, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it it was you know I mean both Ronan and Phil described Dolan as an indulgent director, and I don't think even Dolan himself would dispute that. No, you know, they joked about the the three hour runtime you know for the film that came after this, but this is already two and a half hours for a very tight domestic. Very drama. long. You know, it's a film of excesses. Like, and again, not to get too spoilery, but it plays like it has a wonderful soundtrack. The soundtrack was very popular online before the film was released, and it's it's full of belters. But there are several scenes in the movie where Dolan lets those songs play in their entirety over scenes that are happening. And there's a sense of maybe you could be a bit tighter in the edit. But at the same time, like Andrew, 
through. I actually don't hold that against the film. It's a film that is very youthful, very energetic. I think that's kind of why I like it more than I like some of the films that I would consider it to be like, you know, films like, say, Beast of the Southern Wild, films like The Florida Project, films like even Capernaum, for example, where this feels like it's a genuinely youthful film. It feels like it's a film that's very much from a young person's perspective. It has that energy and that excess and that indulgence that you associate with being, you know, a 24-year-old person making a movie. And I kind of... I couldn't hate it because of that. I found it quite almost infectiously joyful. As much as, you know, as an adult, I'm like, yeah, maybe bring in an editor, maybe trim about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour off it, and, you know, you'd have a much better film. But at the same time, you know, it is what it is. And that infectious energy and indulgence is a fundamental part of what makes the movie what it is. So I like it. But no, it wouldn't be on my own personal 250. And then finally, before we jump to the spoiler zone, Ronan, if listeners have not watched Mummy, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, stay inside, and stream it to their television set? I think sure. Why not? Um, all of the things that, that you were just saying there, uh, yourself and Andrew, um, Dolan's style isn't always for me, but I think always the kind of the operatic, melodramatic camp aspects of it, they're all choices. They're choices I might not agree with, but it's, you know, it's not a kind of transgression where he's slipping over into this hysteria. He's decided that's the way he wants to make the film. I think he's an extremely yeah. talented director who's got a real, um, real ability to tell story through visuals, especially. And even when I don't particularly connect to that story, as I don't always with Mommy and as I don't very much with some of his films, I really admire the craft. So I think it's definitely a film worth watching, worth talking about, and hopefully worth listening to a full podcast. <laughs> Thanks. It's very rare that we get our guests recommending that you actually come back and listen to the podcast. So we really appreciate that. Yeah. It's a good plug. Um, and then, Phil, what, what about yourself? Now, don't feel like you have to recommend they come back and listen to the podcast, but no, would you recommend Don't that? feel like you have to recommend a movie. Definitely recommend a podcast. <laughs> Right. Well, with those two caveats in mind, uh, one, do come back and listen to the podcast, even though at least two of us are drinking. So we can't guarantee how lucid this is going to be. The third, the third part is going to be great. Ching. Um, but um, as for the movie, I would, I would recommend it because, well, number one, you're not going anywhere. So you've got two and a half hours to spare. But besides that, again, like Ronan said, there's, there's real craft at work here. No matter what you feel about the story itself and whatever indulgences Dolan might exercise in terms of the runtime, um, it's arresting, at least visually, and the story is more than compelling enough to see you through its runtime. So definitely give it a go. And then come back to us. And Andrew? Yeah, and I mean, in spite of the runtime, I, I, like it's got... It's got Ronan, it's got Phil. I mean, Darren can be a bit indulgent sometimes, but <laughs> it's 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 well worth listening to. Um, and the film the, the film is pretty good as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't feel like the podcast needed that full three-minute sequence of Darren saying "Who's your daddy?" Uh, repeatedly, and then none of us needed that. Sorry, different Darren. podcast. Uh, but yes, I would also recommend it. Um, I recommend the film is I really, really like the film. I've seen it twice. Um, I watched it twice for the podcast and I, I really, really liked it. It has an infectious energy. I like the first half a lot more than I like the second. Oh, particularly, I really like the first hour. I think the first hour is really, really great. And then I think it kind of becomes a bit more conventional, a bit more familiar. And I think that there are points at which Dolan's 
indulgence. Um, and again, it is definitely a choice. It is definitely a choice. He's a director who knows what he's doing. But there are times at which you're watching him and you're going, maybe if you had held back a little bit, or maybe if you'd shown a bit more restraint at certain points, when you really wanted the film to land, it might have landed a bit better. But those are very small caveats. Um, I really, really like this. And yes, I would wholeheartedly recommend that you pause the podcast, watch it, and then come back and listen to us yap about it for a little while longer. Right then, with that in mind then, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Phil, mm. what is Mummy about for For me? Well, whatever it's about for me, but I know what it's about for Dola, and it's so I'll take his cue. And as is so often the way in his movies, it's about uh, familiar relationships, particularly uh, between uh, mothers and sons. So this is a theme that goes back to his debut, I Killed My Mother. It's also in uh, a number of his other films. But this, just by the name alone, is probably the most obvious manifestation of it. Um, I don't know much about Dolan, uh, his relationship with his family necessarily, but I have to suspect that his relationship with his parents must be, or could be, interesting. I don't know. That's because he keeps coming back to this. Um, it's. I don't know if it, I, I. I don't know if he's necessarily exercising any kind of demons with it, but it's just. It's. It's a very fertile, uh, creative ground for him, and it certainly seems to inspire him and drive him to create some very uh, arresting images and to uh it, it manifests some greater to tell these stories in him so those kind of stories are always going to be interesting because uh you know any kind of analysis of relationships between parents and children most everybody can relate to that so like even as hysterical and intense as this can be there's probably some small nugget of the relationship between the central mother and son here that people can relate to. And um, yeah, anybody anybody who's ever gotten a shouting match with their mother, again, that'll be most people, uh, will understand where this one's coming from. It's kind of interesting that you should mention that, actually, because I, I do have some quotes on Dolan about his mother and about his inspirations and why he keeps going back to these themes. Please enlighten us. Um, at the Canadian Screen Awards uh, in 2014, where the film had 13 nominations, uh, tying it with Orphan Black, and apparently it swept up on the night. Uh, lead, awards for the two actresses, awards for Dolan, and awards for the film itself. Uh, when he was accepting uh, the award, he said, I'd like to thank my mother and dedicate this award to her. I truly mean it. In spite of our differences, she is the most absolute source of inspiration to me. She is present in every word that I write, in every frame that I cut, in everything that I do. And the person she is, is the reason I'm here today. And he also, when he was talking about, when he's talked about the relationship that exists between I killed my mother and mommy, which is a point of kind of conversation. People kind of point to those two films being related to one another. He rejects that assertion, but not necessarily because he thinks those two films deserve to be paired with one another. He rejects that assertion because he thinks that it's a theme that runs through all his work. And he doesn't think it's particularly strong in those two films. Um, 
I Killed My Mother is anecdotal compared to Mummy. It's really about a crisis between two people who love each other more than the world. They love each other so much they can't live together. Meanwhile, I Killed My Mother is a story about two people who can't live together because they're incompatible. It's not like I was ready to go back to Mothers and Sons. I've never really left them. They've always been in my movies somehow. Sometimes in the background, sometimes in the spotlight. So yeah, it very much is something that he's aware that he's kind of writing. And again, it's kind of interesting to a certain extent because we talked on the podcast before about how many of the 250 movies are dad movies. The Star Wars movies, The Godfather, every Christopher Nolan movie to a certain extent. But the idea that, yeah, that most, the kind of the archetypal conflict in these sort of films is typically fathers well, and sons. Well, isn't that like, like we, um, sometimes mo- movies where there is no father, like, like, like for the sixth sense, um, we ended up, uh, in, in spite yes. of there being no, uh, um, well, there, be, there being a father figure, but yeah, that the movie is the movie oh, is absent. about an absent father. Like I, I'm surprised career that, that you're not that. arguing that this is a, this is actually about dads. <laughs> <laughs> that's the red herring <laughs> mommy is actually just a distraction it's really about the father yeah. who's who's absent who died passed away and is buried in a few sidelines of dialogue well you do you do get a, a very clear father figure who's floated at one point and is just promptly dispatched with because it's very clear that this family unit doesn't actually have a use for him i mean be, beyond yeah. beyond the potential um, use of of having him you know take on their legal case and solve their financial woes but once he starts to kind of assert his own personality <laughs> within that family unit it's kind of like no Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? you go away when uh, i don't know if it was when the character was introduced initially or if it was later on that i i said i think out loud um boy it really seems like the guy you don't want representing you <laughs> there's just something about him um, you know the guy when, who's like let's go on a date and bring your 17 year old son yeah yeah but this before i knew any of yeah, that discotheque it can be a work meeting and a date it can be two things at the wow, same time like uh, i feel like maybe you're not a great lawyer although maybe he's expensing it maybe that's what's going on here i mean if you were expensing it you'd hope it was more than just sliders there are some guys out there who might be willing to say anything to persuade a woman but that's a whole new level like that's ooh, yeah you can bring your son um it's if it makes you feel more comfortable, he'll be he'll be putting on his Tinder profile from now on. Uh, no drama. <laughs> but um, and it is kind of interesting because you did mention that the idea of the father figure who is floated and then immediately rejected as soon as he tries to assert any sort of authority. It's a moment when he slaps Steve that you know um, that basically it all falls to pieces and Di's attempt to include him or try to kind of get him on side immediately falls to pieces. She slaps him back and stuff like that. But you do have this kind of interesting rejection of the conventional family unit where it's very much you know. I don't think it is about the absence of fathers or that fathers are important at all. I think the film very much makes the point the father's not important, and I don't think that's a major point within it. But you have the family unit that ends up involving Di and Kayla. That's Even exactly, Kayla's yeah. husband. Yeah, there's a weird, there's a weird kind of a distance between the like the audience and that person as a character, and between him and Kayla. Um, yeah. But it's going to make the point more that Kyla comes over and she becomes, you have this family unit that's made Mm -hmm. up of two mothers Mm. then. She becomes a second mother to Steve. She becomes a teacher. She becomes somebody who earns his respect. Somebody who, you know, and again, you have the the point where Di talks about changing Steve's diapers, basically, and kind of cleaning up after him. But you have the moment where Kyla becomes 
a second mother figure to him when he wets his pants after she attacks him. But that becomes basically a point over which they bond. And so you have a family unit that is very much without a male figure. It's a very unconventional family unit. And I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about Kyla now or if you want to come back to it later. Kyla is kind of an interesting character in that respect because you have, she exists in this very conventional, very routine, very normal, stereotypical nuclear family. There's a small daughter, there's a husband. You get little snapshots. They're working from home. There's homeschooling. Um, it's a very, very... This is set in the future. It's a very, yeah, it's a, it's a very prescient movie. It made me think about what other movies are prescient of the current situation. I remember that in Demolition Man, they don't have any toilet rolls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So um, they got that right. Have you mastered the three shells yet, there, Andrew? <laughs> um, the the scallops are, are are the crucial part of the show. Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you for that, Andrew. But I was more making the point that yes, you have Kyla, who's introduced and has this conventional nuclear family, but she ends up gravitating towards Di and Stevo, and basically kind of getting involved in their life and forming a family with them. But at the end, you have this weird thing where she says, I can't break up my family. I can't leave my family. And in the end, she ends up going back to be with her husband and her child and accepting that as her family and kind of like leaving Di and Steve both separated from each other. And almost it, the film almost seems to treat Kyla as almost a tourist, like she's dipping into this drama. She's dipping into this alternate life and then she's kind of disappearing herself. I kind of found that interesting um, in, in the treatment of that character. It's remarkable she gets into the family at all. Like you're saying about the lawyer neighbor who can't seem to insert his personality into this family at all, but she can. It's interesting she can because the core of the family are these two massive personalities, Dee and Steve, who are will be enough personality for any family on their own. But then in the middle of it all, when they're at their lowest point together, in comes Kyla, this gentle, much more uh, gentle presence into their lives. And I think if if Dolan is saying anything about family dynamics, uh, he's putting forward a point, yeah, this is, it's not necessarily a conventional family. It's, it's two parents, sure, but it's, it's, Kind of that old story about finding family wherever you can when a traditional family isn't necessarily going to work for you. And it can't work for Dee and Steve because their husband slash father has died before the film starts. And um, then comes a calming influence. And as soon as they see how beneficial she can be and how welcome a presence she is, um, they go with it. And in return, she finds some kind of energy and lease of life that she's not finding in her own home, which is a conventional family, uh, father and mother to a young child. Yeah, it's it's a lesson that you, you don't have to have a mother and father to have a conventional family, but there does need to be like a lot of sexual tension, a lot of weird sexual tension. <laughs> and there's a lot of it. Well, uh, did, did, it's a weird, I don't know, I, I just, like, the description of it is, like, conventional. I, 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 I yeah, it, it was, did, did anyone else find this 
uh, unconventional. Which unconventional relationship you're talking about? Are we talking about between Kyla and Di? Are we talking between Steve and Di? Because I think that there is a there's a charge between to both of those relationships. Steve and Di, and between Steve and Kyla um, as as well, and between Di and Steve, there there's something kind of beneath the surface. Um, like, what are we meant to? Um, are, are, are we meant to suppose that this is normal? Because you can see Kyla looking at them and thinking, During the Celine Dion what sequence. What is going on? Do, are they like this all the time? Yeah. Mm. Um, and even in that sequence, you have Steve almost touching, uh, pushing up to touch the breasts and then getting slapped away. But even, I think, is it is it later on that evening or is it a couple of scenes later where you have Di and Kyla having the conversation and Di making it clear that there's nothing inappropriate there going on as well, even though it may seem like there is. And you even have that scene when, you know, they leave, when they're leaving the, um, you know, when, when she takes him out of care and they walk to the bus stop and he's like, you didn't give me a kiss. And she gives him a kiss on the cheek and he's like, go again. And then you end up where she's nuzzling him basically to her breasts. And it is it is rather strange. It's very disconcerting for a, you know a film about basically a mother-son relationship to have that kind of going on there. So, I mean, I did pick up something being strange, but I'm kind of curious to what degree everybody else picked up on, on that aspect of it. Um, I think it's an interesting uh, development in that early on, like that scene at the bus stop, it's, it's a suggestion that there is something just a little, a little off about their relationship that Steve in particular seems very intensely protective and loving towards Dee, towards his mother. Um, and I, crucially, the film doesn't judge Steve or Dee for their relationship, whatever it may be because it's always keen to point out that this family is coming from a place of distress and they're a family that are desperately uh, in need of some kind of path because they don't, they're kind of floating in the ether. I mean, it's, what becomes clear as the film goes on is that when Steve's father, Dee's husband, was alive, that they had some kind of material comfort in their lives they had a home and then after he died things just seemed to go awry steve became violent diagnosed with adhd and had to be put in care and d has been struggling to make a life for her and steve since um for somebody who you're looking at somebody who had material this material wealth at some stage presumably and is now odd jobbing uh, tr- doing translation jobs, cleaning houses, and the like. So, um, Dolan's script and his direction is very much saying, yeah, these people are engaged in a, a strange relationship, but it's not necessarily our place to judge, considering that they seem to be going through some things and working them out over the course of the film, which... Uh, ends not it doesn't end quite so happily no um it's a journey that they have to take did the rest of you feel like it was clear from almost immediately that things were not going to go well and how did that and if if you did feel that do you feel like that took away from your enjoyment of the movie like kind of having a sense of like this is not going to work out well for these um 
characters. I was almost interested to, like, I, I, I knew that the point later on in the movie um, wasn't going to be the end of the movie, but I, I would almost be interested, kind of, um, I almost would have been more interested in that as a movie. And then the movie ends. <laughs> Um, and you get your happily ever after. Uh, you're saying it could do without the little, the, the kind of the epilogue that we do get. It, but it, to answer your question, though, like, about how I feel about them, we do it. Did I see the lack of a happy ending coming? I didn't. But even if I had, I would have to say that the film never allowed that to over... If I did feel it, the film would never allow me to necessarily feel about it because... For large parts of it, there's such an energetic joy to it. And that comes from the energy of the direction, the soundtrack, and the sheer force of performances. Um, that it never it never felt overwhelmingly sad to me until it absolutely had to. Yeah. And even then even then it didn't quite become too- I mean, I found it overwhelmingly ominous. Like I found the whole Celine Dion scene terrifying. <laughs> Celine Dion is always ominous. Genuinely, though, yeah, like I mean, like something terrible is going to happen. Like he's uh, uh, he's going to kill one of these people, or um, <laughs> okay, well, maybe uh, not that extreme. But I think yeah, genuine. no, but but, but I, I felt like some something like there is going to be some reason. Why, um, why they can't be happy? Yeah, exactly. And well, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have. Moved. No, no, but 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 that like it just had the sense that like this is this is going to be very bad, and it's going to be like impossible to kind of for them to um, to live uh, through this and and get back to kind of um, trying to you know function. Again. I, I I thought I like that. Like I, I got that sense as well. And I think the film is very clear in signposting that. You have like the lawyer talking about how he loves Rocky, but he keeps forgetting how it ends, which is very much kind of signposting the direction that this thing's going. But you even have like in the middle of kind of that sequence where, you know, she's managed to get money, she's managed to get a job, where Di's managed to get an advance as well. Things are going as good as they could possibly be going for Di, and she's walking down the street. And all of a sudden her grocery bag bursts and it's like, yes, that is what this movie is going to be. As soon as it looks like things are going to go your way, the grocery bag is going to burst. It's all going to implode. I, with regards to what Andrew is saying, this is one of the things why I was maybe a bit skeptical of this kind of film, because I'm typically skeptical of these sorts of films. And again, we mentioned, say, Caper Now, which we talked about earlier on, which I I quite liked Ronan and J-Ron talking about that, but again, had a similar sense of... They're just going to show you bits where people are happy so that when the inevitable depressing ending happens, it hits you like a sledgehammer. And it feels very much like you're being kind of lined up for that. Yeah. Di- and you also don't like movies where people are irresponsible with shopping trolleys. Um, yes, that, that's, that's the takeaway from this as well. Um, that kind of, it's a Venn diagram, really, of kind of like movies in which this exists with Capernaum. But no, I, I quite like that because I thought that that sense of ominous, ominicity? 
uh, ominitude uh, of being ominous, uh, basically of being ominous. That quality of the movie had was very conscious and very designed and very intentional on the part of Dolan, where you are meant to realize that things are not going to end well. Like that's very much what the aspect ratio is doing. The aspect ratio, the one-to-one aspect ratio, is literally trapping these characters in a box on your screen. So no matter what size screen you're watching on they're always walled in and there are two points in the movie where those walls break and in both of those sequences those walls come back with a vengeance towards the end as if to remind you that no there there definitely is no escape from this and i you know while i'm wary of that sort of storytelling in some cases where it's used i thought it was used well enough here and signposted clear enough here that it wasn't a problem for me but ronan sorry you look like you have something to add. yeah no i think you, you got to bear in mind as well that uh the, the start they've got you know there's a that almost sci-fi aspect to it where it's like here is you know in a distant future although it does explicitly name the date so it's literally a year from now type thing from six years ago um which I think is actually kind of clumsily deployed, but does leave you with that ominousness throughout the film of, oh yeah, there's that thing. It's Chekhov's S14 waiting to come down on us. Um, it's you know it's floating there on the margins of the film, and I do actually I find as I'm watching it I forget about it that uh, that that is coming, and then kind of reminded when you start to get into you know the questions of um, you know as as the lawyer guy comes along it, 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 i found it reminded me oh yeah there was that little thing at the start of the film i don't think it's especially well done but it does contribute to a sense of ominousness i don't think for me that was the overriding feeling though the sense that oh something is going to go terribly wrong here because i was kind of swept up in the the passion of their relationship um and i, I found it interesting a while ago darren you said that you thought um the first half worked a lot better for you i was the exact opposite i kind of didn't like it for the first hour <laughs> i was watching a lot of it going this is annoying these people are insufferable i can't deal with this and the more and more it went on the more i began to kind of appreciate the rhythm of that relationship and be a bit drawn into it and as much as i think the the first scene where steve really goes for his mother is te- is terrifying and she has to lock herself into a room there, there is a real violent thrust to that scene but the the kind of the passionate sequences you get then through the the various dance moments they have um i think the celine dion one works works really well for me i kind of got swept up in that um and it's it, it, it's maybe the way that you see kyla slowly start to come out of her comfort zone herself and there's a sense of almost safety there although it's you know around the edges there is that threat and that danger um i i skew more towards seeing it in an optimistic passionate light with something going wrong that then causes a kind of devastation in the end you know i thought that that had a good emotional impact for me that i i think it was always going to end badly yes to answer the original question but when it does i i i felt a little bit wrenched by that yeah. you know? when i say i didn't like the second half i should be clear it's the point at which it's the point at which the walls come in after the Wonderwall sequence where she opens the letter and it's like oh by the way we are suing you for twenty five thousand yeah. or two two hundred fifty thousand dollars and it's I mean, piled on. It's very Those much piled on. Those are just Canadian dollars, though. <laughs> and the Great <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, it's about 150,000 euro if you're watching. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> also in the European context, um, uh, statutory instrument number 14 of 2015 was the assessment of means in consolidated supplementary welfare allowance regulation. Oh, yeah. See, yeah. we can educate and enlighten in this podcast. Yeah. So that, that was one of Joan Burton's contributions. 
what I was saying, though, about the second half is that, yeah, once those walls come back in, it becomes a lot more formulaic. It becomes a lot more conventional. It becomes very much like, oh, well, it's very clear now that Steve is going to end up leaving or being taken away or being locked away. And I mean, that's always there because you have, as you point out, Chekhov's S14. But the moment at which you get that letter, it's the point at which it becomes absolutely inescapably inevitable. And everything that you're doing after that point is kind of basically just trying to push a boulder up a mountain as it slowly crushes you. And that's the point at which I was like, I get the boulders going to crush them. I know the boulders crushing them. Do we have to spend an hour and 15 minutes washing it crush them? And that was kind of like, that's why I don't like the second half of it as much as the first half. Because like, I see the boulder up the mountain, but it's okay because we're listening to Counting Crows. So that's grand. It's like, when I see them stuck in the mud under the weight of the boulder for an hour and 15, that's a bit much for me. But, you know, such is life. I do think that's fair because I think in this case, Delan is not necessarily great at turning the wheels of the plot because it's almost a secondary consideration. For him, he really wants to have this robust relationship that then comes under some threat. And the threat that he decides on, you know, the way it's, it's signposted at the start and the way it comes in at the end via that letter, as you say, I totally agree, is clumsy. So... The, the emotion works for me. The, the way that he gets that emotion to come out doesn't necessarily. I'd agree with that. I remember when I saw the, this time when I saw that warning about the, uh, about the S14, this law, um, on a rewatch, the first word that sprung to mind was, this is a MacGuffin. <laughs> this is absolutely a MacGuffin yeah. that's driving the plot. And um, I, yeah, so I agree. The emotion that it ends up bringing out is very true, but it's deployed quite clumsily and i think i think more why the film works and why i don't necessarily agree with you darren about the first half not being as strong as the second or yeah the first half not being as strong as the second is because i think the first half is stronger oh you okay um i think okay i like i like it all i like all the film (laughs) but i think but, but I think there's kind of like a two halves thing going on here. And the first half, it is, like you say, Boulder coming, heading towards you, and then Boulder crushing everything in his path. But the first half, the second half, I think, works well enough for me because the first half is working on building the relationships between the three main characters. And it does it, and it does it in a remarkable way, in a way that I, tech, that technically, when you try and put it on when you put it on paper it probably shouldn't work one of my favorite moments in the entire film is one you just referenced there is when steve goes out and he's uh, longboarding and being disruptive with a shopping trolley and it's all set to counting crows colorblind but he shoots so donald shoots it with such an enthusiastic camera it's always on steve he you know he can swing his longboard or his shopping trolley around as much as he wants the camera is fixed on him and the joy that's on his face and uh, the choice of the song um i would say there's probably he's probably preying on memories of a certain age of viewer because that song was most famously used in the film Cruel Intentions, which is a guilty pleasure for me, for me and many people my age. Um, but it, it is also a, a song that is both, that has a certain jo- a joy to it, but delivered in a very melancholy way. And I just think it sets up the idea of Steve about how he's railing to find some joy in his life in a, in a system, in a society that 
can't possibly allow it. He's violent and he's he's too much for anybody to handle. And so when it comes to the midway point and you get the famous scene where he breaks the fourth wonder wall, if you will. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> there is so terrible. much 90s. It's, yes, there is very nice. it's incredible. Yeah, there, it's, there's Eiffel 65. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that was in the film until I saw it the second time. It was, oh, part of me wanted to wince, but another part of me just kind of wanted to wanted go to with dance. it. Yeah, because well, I mean, Lord knows I did enough like, back in the day. Because this is one of the things about the film, when you read a lot of commentaries on the film, a lot of discussion about Steve as a character and a lot of discussion about Steve as a person or an individual within the film. A lot of critics reacting very strongly against Steve, finding him to be an incredibly annoying character, finding him to be grating or finding him to be insufferable. And this is kind of strange because I think that one of the reasons why the film works so well um, is because it... While it's very much about Di, and it's very much her story and her journey and her arc and where she goes and where she comes from and, and her journey, it aligns a lot with Steve. And like it's very much the sense where, and Phil mentioned that, the sequence with Counting Crows, where the camera is just whirling around Steve. Steve is a kid who has no attention span. He's got no control. He's got no restraint. He can't stop himself from indulging all of his impulses. He, you know, will go and go and go and is incredibly high energy. Does it sound at all like anybody who was involved in the production of this film in any way, shape or form? It feels very much like kind of Dolan's kind of leaning through Steve and kind of like that he empathizes with Steve and he understands Steve. And again, that's what the soundtrack's like, because I mean, Andrew pointed out, this is a soundtrack of 90s bangers. Phil pointed out, like, the touchstone for that Counting Crows song is Cruel Intentions. Those are not Steve's touchstones, because Steve is, what, 14 in, you know, in 2014. He wasn't alive when those movies came out. The film rationalizes this by saying, oh, it's a, it's a mixtape CD that was burnt for him by his father on a trip they took through California to Los Angeles. But that's n clearly not what it is. It's, these are the movies that Dolan likes. These are the movies that Dolan associates with being kind of a teenager or being that that age and putting them on screen and so i think that's yeah I, I think like his the amount of work he does for steve it's a real it's a real accomplishment that somebody who's so kind of um um like uh violent and uh racist and has so many kind of um, horrible kind of terrifying um, qualities is at the same time so um, charismatic and likable and you want and sympathetic to yeah 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 you want things to work out well for him yeah um, well it, or at least it's definitely, I did. it's definitely the case that Dolan feels for both Steve and Di like yeah. like you say Darren it is Di's story but her journey throughout all her life has been framed through Steve and what he's going through. You know, something happens to him, she has to react. So we are watching her story in that way. But like you say, there is, I, I think, I think in a certain sense, Dolan really w wants us to like Steve and feel for Steve as much as he does. He's uh, played, he's played by uh, a young actor, Antoine Olivier Pion, who he cast in his, who Dolan cast for originally for his music video for the song College Boy by Indochine. 
and then cast them in this. And um, the camera loves them. I, I, I think there's, to a certain extent, the camera and Donna want you to fall for Steve. He's a, he's a young guy. He's got that uh, very young, boyish looks. Twinkish, dare I say. <laughs> like, uh, like uh, uh, Donna is an openly gay director, so and he, that has been through all his uh, films. And while uh, Steve isn't gay, he, he's actually quite homophobic, but he does have that kind of look that... Uh, is he not? Donna makes him look very appealing. He dresses is, him up. Is... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is is um, is Steve not um, kind of gay or, or or queer or bisexual? It's kind. Of, I don't know. I found that a bit hard to read. I think it's it's right. it's really strange. It's kind of floating around the edge of the film, and it's never really discussed. In yeah. Any kind of way. You get uh, you know, people on the karaoke scene jeering at him and calling him queer faggot, etc. You get those kind of intense insults but it's not something he ever acknowledges himself. So I think you're invited to consider it at various points, but it's... Is there a moment, is there a moment where he's kind of eyeing um, and, and another boy? Well, this is the moment when he arrives and it's like, this is a movie set in Canada. So we have people playing hockey on the street, just so you know that it's Canada. But he spots a, a blonde haired, long haired oh, boy who's playing hockey. And again, I, the first time I watched it, Andrew, I actually, I actually had the same reaction that Andrew did, which is, is this implying that Steve is actually gay? Second time I watched it, I was like, actually, is this Steve looking at another blonde boy who's very much like him, but who is more conventional, who is fitting in, who is capable of, as his mother frequently uses the word and he mocks, mingling with other children in a way that he simply can't. And I kind of wonder, again, this is something where I think it's intentionally ambiguous. I mean, I did see it both as Andrew did, but I also then saw it as something that reflected more how Steve kind of brief and again this is the thing where, where phil mentions the the kind of the empathy for die and for steve and i think this is what really elevates the film for me because i mentioned i'm not a fan of these kinds of films that are about you know that old tolstoy cliche about unhappy families all being unhappy in their own distinct ways but this kind of tendency to lean into kind of soap operas and kind of this melodrama about families that you know are capable of being together and are dysfunctional and kind of that being a staple of certain strands of independent cinema and i think what i really liked about this one is that it is humanist and it's very it it accepts both perspectives and it's again i'm wary of presuming too much of dolan and his relationship to his mother but it feels very much like a son looking at a mother who tried her hardest and understood in a like and again in an absurd way i don't think dolan was in any way like steve and i'm not implying that but i'm saying as somebody who as a son looks at his parents and goes you guys tried your hardest and maybe i wasn't always exactly what you wanted me to be and i understand that and i understand how hard you worked and that sometimes you feel like my failures are your failures and there's a real sense of that running through the film and i think i kind of saw that in steve i saw the kind of humanism of looking at Di as someone who was trying her hardest, but not judging her for that. And that beautiful moment you get at the end where Steve's last attempted conversation with her, where he gets her voicemail. And he's, you know, you get that wonderful, almost abstract shot of mm. him in a straitjacket against a black background, as if there's really just nothing there but him kind of tied up. But that sense of him wanting to it's let It's like her he's know, in some surrealist play <laughs> or something. It's yeah. Beckish-esque. Yeah. Yeah. 
But there's a sense of wanting her to know that she did her best for him, which is kind of radically different from, say, Capernaum, which is about how, you know, how awful these parents are to these kids. And that's terrible. And they aren't trying. And, you know, the failure of them is is awful. And thank goodness that kid was able to get away. Whereas here you have an actual sense. And again, this is, you know, admittedly, probably my own bias and my own desire for a feel good Hollywood kind of structure on things. But it's a case of two people who are trying their best and just not able to make it work for one another, where there's a sense that Di is legitimately doing everything that she can for Steve, and a sense that Steve is not able to be everything that Di wants him to be, and that isn't his fault, and a sense of the film not assigning blame to either of them in this scenario. And I kind of that's what I took from the second time I watched it, that moment where he looks at that kid playing hockey with all the other kids and going, is that what my mother wants me to be? Is that the son that she wants? As opposed to, well, that's another handsome young blonde man over there. Mm. I, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, is he sizing him up for a fight? As much a possibility as anything, maybe. But um, in terms of what D or die, is it? I always thought it was D because she's never say die. But. Um, Born to die. Is, I've, 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 oh, yeah, that, that, that was a very on the nose point right at the end, wasn't it? Um, and it's the one song that was like uh, contemporaneous as well. Mm, Roughly. Yeah. Not quite. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was as close as you'd get. Yeah. Uh, bef- but before that, we're talking about the soundtrack doing a lot of heavy lifting. Dolan said that part of the inspiration for the script was discovering the music of Ludovico Einaudi. Yeah. And one of the most memorable portions of the film is towards the end and it's the when first the first 15 film... minutes of up <laughs> <laughs> just like that um yeah. but it's when the uh when the borders when the one the one one aspect ratio is torn away again and d goes on a journey with kyla and steve and she imagines the life that steve is going to have going to school, graduating, going to college, finding a girlfriend, getting married, um, all Being that recast. Once, by Xavier, as Xavier Dona. <laughs> oh, really? But, yeah, that was him. Oh, That's wow. Him. Yeah, they look nothing alike, do they? Um, but, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was like believable as a piece of casting. Uh, um, it was passable. But, Second um, Steve. Tr- He's still blonde and handsome. <laughs> Yeah, he's still blonde and handsome, really, is what we take from that. Yeah, uh, but uh, the soundtrack to that entire sequence is a piece called Experience by Einaudi. And you can imagine, you could almost imagine Donan typing the directions for that sequence and the dialogue of that sequence into the script while listening to that. And like it summarizes the film in an... It's a, the film in a nutshell, really. It's building and building and building. And as the journey goes on, you think it's going to somewhere happy. But then at the end of this sequence, we realize that that's not what it's going to be. And it becomes something much more sad and much more poignant. And watching it this time, um, I mean, I, I recognize what it was trying to do. It was trying to get the, this shockingly emotional reaction. And damned if I didn't kind of fall for it. It is, it is quite moving. Yeah. Like you're, you've been through hell with these characters for the previous nearly two hours, and 
you do get to a point where you wish them that kind of happiness. So I was going to say, did you actually think that was real when that happened? I mean, was oh, there as part of oh, you that no, was not like, the first time, even the, the first time you watched it? Oh, the first time I watched it, I thought, well, this is nice, but yeah, something's gone amiss here. This can't be. It's very Last Temptation of Christ. Isn't it? That's a very good comparison, although it's mercifully briefer than but I digress. That's Scorsese. Um, but I digress. Um, no, I think I, I actually I completely agree. Um, I you know I mentioned that I I wasn't a huge fan necessarily the first hour, and I find myself I found myself at times in that first hour kind of thinking I'm not sure if I'm into what this film is trying to do, and then got that slow build up of the relationships and that moment especially that sequence, which I think it plays to Delan's strengths. I think Phil, you mentioned a while ago the the music video he did, and that was incredibly well received at the time. He is the perfect director for music videos. Partly I think probably because he grew up in them. That's where he learned his visual language that's that's where he'll have, he'll have picked up ideas about how to direct and it's it, you know it's it's no surprise that for a lot of this film he composes scenes as music videos you know he's made a new video for wonderwall essentially at one point here it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the narrative it's just taking those characters and, and putting them into the the music video so that that one i know sequence is a brilliant music video that because of the, the the kind of framework he puts around it with these characters, for me it works really well. That's the moment where I went, ah, actually, yeah, I am. This mm, film. Mm. No, that's a uh, very well put. Like you could see this film, if you were so cynically minded, you could see this film as a drama interspersed with um, with music videos. Mm-hmm. But it's all done quite well. He stitches it all relatively well together. That. Does, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't begrudge. I, 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 wouldn't, I think it's structured well enough that you couldn't quite reduce it to that. Um, though I agree with you that there are some elements of the plot that are just a bit clunky. But damned is the film, I, it, it has an emotional propulsion to it. Like the first half of the film, since it's almost exclusively about building these characters and spending time with them, and slowly working through their relationships. If you didn't have that, I don't think that payoff would work off near yeah, near yeah, as yeah. well. Um, so yeah, that that was absolutely my experience. That I found, you know, it was only in that moment, and and maybe for the half hour that came before it, that I realized all the groundwork that had gone in before that. I went, ah, oh, okay, I see, I see what he's been, you know, working on me all the way up to this moment. Now I appreciate it. Well, if if we were to be cynical minded, um, how would we feel about the the moment during the kind of Wonderwall music video where he shouts out, "I am free!" Um, like, did is, and, and like I remember watching that and thinking, like, this is yeah. very on the nose, but I'm I'm kind of okay with it. But how did you guys I think? Would I'd agree with that? I'm up until that point, like. We've got to the crescendo of the whole that whole segment that that music video, if you will, like he's torn the barriers apart, like the film's wide screen now, and he's on the road, and his mother figures are there with him, and honestly, I'd let him shout whatever he wants at that point because it's got to a point where it's been earned, yeah, and yeah, like what he says it is right on the nose libre, I'm free. Um, also, as somebody who studied French in uni, there is something quite odd about suddenly having to adjust your ear to French-Canadian, or yeah. Canadian-French. It's even more so than, say, 
listen to American English versus English English. Um, but uh, but that, that's a side note. But yeah, like I think those segments, whatever. Again, like the film as a whole, whatever indulgences Dolan might throw into the script, you forgive them just based on the sheer energy of what's going on in front of the camera and his and his yeah. of the camera and his all his choices there's such exuberance there that you forgive it as flaws i think those scenes almost have the the kind of character of a um of a musical sequence in a classic hollywood musical you know in, in sound of music or sound of music or um singing in the rain or even you know something like um everyone says i love you the, that scene where goldion goes up in the wires and you know she's not actually flying but it's one of these great musical extravagances that you can use those kind of visual abstractions to say more about characters and it's it, it's the land being kind of very classical hollywood in some ways but doing it in a very contemporary way i don't think it always works very very well but he's he's got a really interesting way of kind of working with modern media to, to fold in the, the the way that we used to make movies, the way that we used to tell character through these things. So I think, and especially you're, you're absolutely right, Phil, the, the moment where the frame expands, you almost know instantly that that's not real because it's, you know, it's almost like the old clouding around the haze of the frame. You know, that this is a dream. There's the harp strumming, whatever. There's a lot of visual signifiers here. That they, yeah, oh, yeah. Isn't. But you're, in that moment, you hope so. Hmm. No, what I, I would say, though, actually, and... and- at the risk of being kind of controversial, I really like the Wonder Wall sequence in general. I do think that there are moments of kind of excess and moments of kind of lack of restraint there, which, you know, maybe go a little bit too far. Maybe you're going to be the one who saves me, sing the Gallagher <laughs> brothers on the soundtrack at one point, for example. But I, I like, I, I do wonder, and I th- again, I, I think... I agree with everything that Phil said about the Ainauchi scene at the end. It's the powerhouse emotional gut punch of the movie. It's the heart of the movie. Dolan talked about how he reverse engineered the entire movie from that sequence. How he had the vision. It kind of shows. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's, it's You're taking the road to get there. You're taking two hours and a quarter to get there. And again, there's that sense of him. And again, what I talked about there, the idea of a mother imagining. He talked about how he imagined the movie or he listened to the piece of music and it was about a mother imagining a future for her son that didn't come to pass. And that very sort of universal sense of kind of your knowing that your parents wanted what was best for you, even if you didn't deliver on it, um, you know. But that sort of sense of that. But I do think that, like, as much as I love the Wonder Wall sequence, and as great as I think it is, and as liberating as I think it is, I do wonder if that final sequence would have packed even more of a punch if it were the first time that the boundaries expanded. If it was the only time in the movie at which it went fully widescreen and broke out of that kind of claustrophobic one-to-one aspect ratio. If, like, you hadn't already seen it done in Wonderwall. If he didn't do the trick twice. And, I mean, this is the thing where, you know, am I maybe being a bit unfair there? Am I being unreasonable? You know, is the excess the point of it? Or, you know, is this a point where the excess undermines the film somewhat? Um, I think that the first time it happens with the Wonderwall sequence... um, Okay, you get you kind of get the message. It's a joyful tearing apart of the boundaries, so on and so forth. Um, he does it the second time though. It's a it's like a it's a fake out. Um, you know, you think mm. you're get, you're getting the same thing again, but then one it makes the closing in all the more brutal. It, but what, the, the Wonderwall sequence has the same closing in. Like it has the moment where she opens the letter, and the letter is like, "Oh, by the way, your son nearly burnt a guy's face off. You owe us a quarter of a million there is, uh, dollars." Well, there is that, um, but there's still there's still a considerable chunk of the film to go, and there are still a number of directions the film could go. But by the time the Anaudi sequence ends, 
you know, if any audience member looks at their watch, they'll realize as soon as the as soon as the borders come back in, uh, they're going to see, ooh, we're nearly at the end. This is this is really not going to end well now. So it's like it, it's done with purpose. Um, whether the whether the second sequence would have more of a punch if it saved it just for that, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, all I know is that the Wonder Wall sequence it is almost entirely defined by the peeling back of the borders. So, I, I, I mean, I'd probably keep it, but mm, it's a matter for debate, really. Um, what did what did how do people feel about? the aspect ratio in terms of kind of, of or, or kind of Darren describe it as um, as it being very much kind of like a box and you're in this kind of um, uh, ah. s- uh, square uh, space. But I find when I'm looking at it, it, it looks more like it's, it's a rectangle, like a phone screen. Uh, like I'm looking at it on a phone. Like, yeah, like, like it's in portrait. It's, I think, whatever about it trapping the characters, but it also kind of traps the audience as well. It means that for most of the film, all you see within the frame is a face. And you're forced to look upon that face and the emotions it's feeling and going through and expressing. So it, it, it's very confrontational in that sense. I know it, thematically it's an obvious representation of the how the characters feel trapped, but it's very much designed to trap you as well as a viewer in how they're feeling. So if you feel... It's like us, like we're doing a Skype call here now to record this, and all I'm seeing here are three other boxes with three faces alongside mine, and what beautiful creatures we are. But, you know... it. There's nothing else for us to focus on, like, you know. Like we're having, we're talking about this, and like I'm looking at you guys, and I'm kind of like gauging reactions here to what someone else might be saying, and it's absolutely fascinating to watch. But you know, if you're having a conversation with somebody, how often do you look them dead in the eyes? Unless you're saying something particularly profound, um, probably not all that much. You know, we're distracted by other people, we're distracted by our phones, the whole world around us, everything. So to be in that focus for over two hours, it's a, it's a very confrontational and draining experience, especially when it's this kind of melodrama. I say melodrama, there's nothing mellow about it, it's just drama. So I, it's, it's a very, it's a choice that Dolan makes, but it's very much, I think, centered on the viewer more than the character necessarily. It is worth noting there, just on that, he's, he's kind of like, it's been described as an Instagram or a mobile phone kind of angle. And it's that sense of modernity creeping in. Dolan himself disputes this. He says that he never wanted it to look like an Instagram uh, sort of story. He never wanted it to look like a mobile phone video. Um, what his actual inspiration, and again, I kind or of... Or a TikTok. Or a TikTok as well. Andrew's that, down with a the vertical kids. Video. I did my first TikTok, by the way. Because um, we are... I are, you I, setting I, up, are you setting up two fifty TikTok I, I, there, I, I, Andrew? I, I did I did a TikTok for my um, uh, to wish my friend a happy birthday. Oh, how good of you! Um, so it, it no, it, it was um, it was fun. We did one of those dance challenges. <laughs> anyway, what I was saying about the one to one ratio is that uh, Dolan sort of, and I kind of love that. 
Dolan is an interesting interview subject um, because, again, Phil sort of met him on the red carpet and stuff like that. He tends to come across as quite precocious and quite sort of, uh, yeah, iconoclastic and stuff like that. And he tends to have, there's the uh, conversation where he was Googling himself on his phone during the interview. He's like, look at that picture of me. I look so high. I mean, I was very high, but I wasn't that high, uh, for example. He, he is particularly mischievous. And I think the, the 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 quote you were talking about where he's talking about how he didn't want to replicate Instagram. Actually, he wanted to replicate classical Hollywood with the one-to-one aspect ratio. He knows enough about film history to know that that's not the classical Hollywood aspect ratio. Four or three is. So he's working with something different here. He knows that. He's being a bit mischievous. That he, he He's kind of gesturing to that. But he also is gesturing, I think, absolutely to Instagram. Yeah. And and the best, but I was going to say the best part of that quote that Ronan alluded to, though, isn't even the bit where he lies about the classic Hollywood <laughs> film ratio. It's the bit where he goes, you know, people say like it's pretentious. I'm not pretentious. The least thing I am is pretentious. I mean, all I'm doing is going back to the classic Hollywood film ratio. That was what films were originally shot in. And it's very much like, I'm not pretentious. I just know more than you do, you pleb. Uh, Which again has that sort of like, and again, you read interviews with him where he's very consciously playing with the interviewer and he's very consciously being provocative and cheeky and mischievous as well. At the time where where this uh, shared the Grand Jury Prize in Cannes with Jean Ducotter, he he came out and I think in a statement uh, thanking the the can jury, he said it was such an honor to to share the prize with Gunnar, and he he'd been such a fan for so many years. And somebody dug up a, a quote from him from an interview one year previously, where he said something along the lines of, "I've never watched any Goddard films." And again, he talks. He talks about that kind of like the aspect ratio very much in the way that Phil did, which is that it puts a face on screen and it means that you can't look at anything but a face. He doesn't have to construct a shot in such a way that, you know, because again, even if you're using widescreen, you're putting a single person a frame. What you're doing is you're you're indicating their kind of isolation by filling negative space around them. By just having a one for one frame, you're kind of head on with them. You can't look away kind of even if you want to, even if he's feeling up his mouth. Oh, like that, that's the point. It it makes the disturbing elements just that bit more disturbing, really. Um, but what what I was going to say yeah. was he actually cited as his influence not Instagram, not phone videos, not even classic Hollywood, but the classic CD cover. That was apparently what he cited as one of his major inspirations in terms of the look and feel of the film. He wanted every shot to look like it could be a CD cover. Uh, and it's worth noting in that respect as well, one of the reasons why he decided or settled on the 1.1 aspect ratio, the 1 to 1 aspect ratio, was because he actually used it in that video that Phil mentioned, that music video um, that he did with, um, was it Indochine is the name of the band and uh, is a college age boy is the name of the song as well. And he apparently fell in love with it while he was doing it. It was like, let's make an entire movie like this as well. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of the reviews as well, like that was what prompted that infamous, he's uh, smelling the fragrance of his own art. Uh, comment was the idea of like the insistence on filming a film that is not a short film that is quite a long film two hours and a half in a ratio that viewers are not used to seeing and which takes up most of your cinema screen with black space which again almost seems mischievous um in that way that sort of ronan described as well but i think it works well i think it gives you that sense of claustrophobia i think it kind of contributes to that sense of dread as well that andrew kind of alluded to because there is a sense that the characters are always literally boxed in that their world is so small that there are no horizons for them you know it's literally just them all they have is each other all that you know die can see at any given moment is steve and all that steve can see at any given moment is die and there's literally no world world beyond them as well and i think it works in that sense uh, as well i would argue and again phil mentioned 
mentioned that it's about what the audience sees as much as the characters are presented. But I think that the way the film's told, it's that Steve and Di are as much the audience as the characters. It's as much about seeing a mother and seeing a child and a child seeing a mother as it is a mother seeing a child, I think, to be fair. It's it's because Javier Dolan as well doesn't remember. Um, he, 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 he knows about longboards, but he doesn't know about long boxes. <laughs> Which is in 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 the eighties and nineties, uh, CDs were were um, were in uh, uh, long boxes in 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 North America. But it, 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 it's it's kind of strange to think about. But the the the, the where 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 they were where they were packaged as if they were DVDs, um, is it? like it wasn't DVDs. Yeah, it wasn't the shape of a CD. Yeah. It, it was. Um, it's it's difficult to kind of um uh picture it's like um yeah it's it's i i think it was like about 12 inches tall okay um i didn't know that i've never seen that so huh. yeah so he wasn't going back to the original kind of <laughs> cd, um, CD package you're calling him out here yeah, 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 yeah. you can never take yeah, you can never take a Xavier Dolan interview quote at face value, it seems, apparently, is what we're getting. I'll send no. you a link, Darren, to the films, to my interview with him. To make of it what you will. Um, but also in terms of that kind of aspect ratio and that sense of claustrophobia, one of the things I actually found I really liked about the film is that that use of kind of space, because there's so little cinematic space, what you tend to get is characters crowding into and around one another in it. As Andrew said, you can't look away when he's feeling up his mother. But even in the, that opening scene, and again, that's a sense of like, I see what you're doing there, Dolan. It's very, you know, I see what you're doing there, movie, where the movie kind of opens with, um, you know, sort of with Die getting into a collision at a junction, at a car, at a, at a road junction. And then that climactic sequence that we talked about, that phenomenal Iannucci set sequence, that experience sequence, is basically unfolds in her mind's eye when she comes to another junction. So it's like she doesn't have a car crash at this junction. She just tur- chooses to go left instead of plowing straight ahead into disaster, which is, ah, I see what you did there. Symbolism, metaphor, motif. Very clever. Yeah, you're, but never like, gonna, in that, you're never going to accuse Dolan of being particularly subtle. No, not at all. Well, I mean, I, I didn't pick it up until the second time I watched it, to be fair. Um, but it is worth noting that, like, in that opening car crash sequence, you have this cacophony of sound, which is very effective. The sound mixing throughout is phenomenal. But in that opening car crash sequence, you have the sound of the pedestrians. You have the music that's playing on the car stereo. You have the Four Seasons playing inside the music shop when somebody rushes out to come see it. And there's a sense of, like, cacophony and noise and chaos. And you even get as well with Kayla. And again, this is one of those... You know, maybe the movie's being a little bit too cute for its own good. I see what you're doing there, where Kayla comes into this house, which is very loud and full of dominant voices. And you mentioned that, you know, Steve and Di are so loud that there seems to be barely any room for any other character. And oh my God, Kayla literally has a speech impediment. She literally <laughs> cannot make herself heard. She has to struggle to articulate herself, herself because there's this breakdown of communication that's happening. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay... You know, if if you were playing things a bit more seriously, if you weren't if you weren't as high energy, if you weren't go go go, if you weren't doing this music video montage editing, if you didn't have this kind of heightened, kind of almost stylized, kind of this use of color even in terms of film, I'd maybe think this was a bit much. But you kind of get away with it because it's like okay, fine, I, it's all part of the package. It all works relatively well, I think. That's that's very delightful. He does that kind of thing all the time. Like I think myself and Phil have both mentioned Tom at the Farm is probably his best film. You know, it's very Hitchcockian thriller. But at one point, there's a weird dance sequence 
and it works. It fits in. It's, you know, it's absolutely within the tone of the film. There's that kind of heightened camp atmosphere that even when there's a, a sense of threat, as there is in that film and absolutely in this one as well, you have those weird flights of fancy that they just fit. And and it's just, it, it is, I think, also just kind of consolidating a lot of his own directorial tics. Like the the close-ups, even without the the one-one aspect ratio, they're they're present in all his films. Like you get a lot of them on top of the farm. Um, it's only the end of the world is constant close-ups, um, annoyingly so. But <laughs> you, and you th- and you wouldn't think you'd get sick of staring at Marion Cotillard or Leia Sedu, but you do when they're constantly shouting in your face or being wasted. I really don't like that film, but that's beside the point. Um, I do love that Phil's like, but you could never get tired of Vincent Cassell yelling in your face. Uh, no, I could. I, I, I see, Do you know what I watched recently uh, for the first time? Ocean's 12. Because I'm, I'm catching up on my on the gaps in my Steven Soderbergh film. Oh, oh yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're all on Netflix, and, um, aren't they? Yeah, the, the third Was one. Was Cassell in that? Yeah, he's in 12. Oh. Yeah, he's the fox. He is, yeah, yeah. I haven't, I, I, I haven't seen it in its entirety, but I, 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 I think I saw a part of it and I was like, oh, Vincent Cassell is in it. Maybe yeah, I'll watch uh, it. It's not great, but uh, it, with hindsight, it's very much of a piece with Soderbergh's self-referential experiments. Um, but um, anyway, Vince Cassell is in that. He's also in It's Only the End of the World. And I suggest, I would, I, I'd suggest watching Ocean's 12 over watching It's Only the End of the World. Because it's, uh, Ronan, I would love for you to watch It's Only the End of the World just to see what I, you think. I'm not going to do this. It's led by Gaspar Ulliel. <laughs> The the strange thing is that um, Matthias Maxime has got okay reviews in some quarters. You know, some some Delan fans have said, "Oh, he's back after his kind of two his two big failures that almost everybody agrees were big failures." And if that one didn't work for me, I would hate to see the failures. Um, I I would say there's probably an element that people are might be looking through this, uh, through rose tinted lenses mm-hmm. in light of those two films. I don't yeah, know. I haven't yeah, seen yeah. Matthias Maxime, but uh, I, the reviews I've seen have been mixed. So, but again, compared to John, if Donovan mixed would be an improvement. And what's what's interesting about um, part of the reason that I didn't like that film is to to take us back to Mummy, Anne Dorval plays a mother figure in it. It's the third time she's explicitly played the main character's mother. So he, you know, these these kind of recurring themes. He he has recurring cast as well. I think both yeah. of the both of the the main actresses in this. It was Anne Dorval has been films, respectively. And Orval has been. Orval's been in five films, been right? In five, five films. Of his of films. His. Uh, they, they're probably the be- the thing she's most known for outside her niche in Quebecois film and uh, stage. And uh, Suzanne Clément, who plays uh, Kyla, she's in uh, three of his films. Uh, so yeah, he, like that's not unusual for a director to have a, a kind of repertory yeah, group of yeah, actors. Yeah. But like you say, when they're playing the same kind of characters as And Orval seems to be. Um, yeah, maybe he's leaning on his own ticks a bit. Um, which is there is a sense of that, and I think, in, in fairness to Dorval, she comes out of it magnificently. Like considering this is uh, her, I think this was her fourth with him, and Dorval, um, and she she gives an absolute barnstorming performance. You know, it's, it, it's incredible like, work. I mean, we haven't really talked about the actors in particular, but all three are great. Yeah, absolutely. And they're. No, I, 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 I thought Antoine Olivier in particular. I mean, like, there's a sense that Kyla largely exists just to justify the casting of the role. 
Like there's a sense like, like Kyla in terms of like the character who wanders in and then wanders out and provides this juxtaposition of like a normal family with this dysfunctional family. You could arguably trim a lot of the movie if you trimmed her character. The sense of Dolan's like, no, 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 I want I want her in. I want her in the movie. I want to work with her again. She's part of my kind of production pack. This is what we're doing. I get what you mean. But at the same time, she does bring a dynamic to the film, which which kind of needs to be there. Like, yeah, it would have been, I guess, too claustrophobic without her. Um, I've, I've, oh, yeah. If it was just those two. Yeah. Like, like I said, like I, I hate to bring it back to this again. but It would have been difficult, I think. Like, part of the problem with only, It's Only the End of the World is that it's a family of five all screaming <laughs> at each other. This is a family of two with a mitigating third. Yeah. Thank God for her. We need at least two of her in it's only the in it's only the end of the world. Uh, so like buffers, absolutely. Like she's an ocean calm <laughs> in this film, uh, which is desperately, desperately needed by both the audience and the characters. So um, I get what you're saying, Darren. Like she, like anybody would seem a bit more kind of passive. Well, maybe not passive, but less less involved, maybe if only because the main two characters, mother and son, are just so ramped up and so energetic. So I get what you're saying, but I think she has to be there. All right, then. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with Mummy? Anything that we think merits discussion? I'll just briefly say that there there is a um, quite a large amount of both food waste and inappropriate smoking in this movie yes <laughs> yes there's quite a lot the classic 250 tropes it opens it almost opens and introduces steve with inappropriate smoking he hasn't reached the bus stop before he's inappropriately smoking for a teenager for example yeah yeah um, arguably he already made little, cute little kevin inappropriately smoke as well <laughs> um, but we won't talk about that nice but, um, nice no um sorry is he a saint should we crap a statue for him? <laughs> oh, Poor Kevin Julia. Yeah, some of, some of the lines in this are really incredible, actually. Like, um, that I enjoyed. Um, like, I, I... Oh, the smoking while cooking as well, which combines inappropriate... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like made for this podcast, yeah. So it's just a pity we don't like it more, but we do like it, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, and again, there's there's quite a few of those kind of like lines that Andrew kind of alluded to there. I really like the the opening scene that you have almost with Die and the Social Worker, where you have this is the theme of the movie, which is sometimes love can't save people. Love is not enough, unfortunately, and it's like oh. I wonder if this is going to be a theme that we'll be getting over the course of the rest of the film. And I mean, even at the end, you have a kind of comeback where you have that uh, scene where Steve kind of makes a run. That kind of almost, and again, I apologize for bringing in this frame of reference, the Joker-esque ending. Yes, movie. that's exactly yeah. what I thought. I thought it, it, Todd Phillips has, is a Dorval, is, is a Dolan fan. Well, that's nice to know. Um, it's... Thank you for reminding me of Joker. Thank you so bloody much. But but even while that's happening, before he makes a run for it, you have the background characters having a conversation about one of their colleagues, a doctor who is in a toxic relationship and she just can't get rid of this man who is dragging her down, who is making her life hell. And it's like, yep, 
I get the sense that maybe this is a theme that we're reiterating as well. And again, it's kind of a nice, the movie has that kind of laser guided focus where it's very much like hammering in. This is what the movie is kind of about. This is the relationship that exists between Di and Steve as well. Out of curiosity, before we wrap up, did we make anything of the ending? What did we think of that kind of closing scene? I don't like it. Sorry, Ronan, uh, do you want to elaborate on that, actually? Not especially. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I just, I think um, the film ends on a really great emotional note, and then it leans more towards a music video moment. Um, And I think those work really well as uh, bits peppered throughout the film. But I think the the beating heart of it is the emotional aspects, and I, I do think actually the if, if we want to refer to them as music videos within the film, the Inaudi one is the only one that carries actually any emotional weight for me. And so to to pivot to this to the for the very ending, you're going from a scene that works for me to one that I feel is a bit of an indulgence. So the my my sort of parting glance at the film is one that I think is a little weaker than it could have been. Mm. I think it would have worked actually if it wasn't soundtracked. If it was just maybe silence yeah. or, or or maybe a voiceover, but yeah, the choice of song that, it's, it's "Born to Die" by Lana Del Rey. It's like there's no ambiguity. He's like, yeah, he's he's jumping. Bye now. Yeah, it's a little underwhelming. So before we wrap up, what we normally do is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment, something that gives you pleasure, something that you're deriving a little bit of kind of enjoyment from at this most stressful of moments. It can be something related to the film. It can be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be a film. It could be just something you enjoy randomly, whatever it is. So before I ask our guests, I'm just going to ask Andrew, what are you enjoying at the moment? So I'll mention a few things that I kind of um, thought about while um, um in during our discussion there there's um they play wonderwall and it's kind of the the question that like um a lot of people asked in the 90s and that you get even in father ted is um it was better um oasis or blur (laughs) and and of of course the correct answer is blur but the more correct answer is pulp so i'm going to recommend uh, uh jarvis cocker's um uh his uh solo album uh Jarvis um and I'll also recommend something a little bit um uh, different which is him reading the story from uh, Grimm's fairy tales of um the mouse uh, the bird and the sausage and you can you can find uh, both of them on Spotify um another thing in terms of aspect ratios is I know I've recommended it before, but in case anyone still hasn't seen it, is The Lighthouse. It's in uh, 1.19 um, uh, to 1 um, aspect ratio. And I found, I've, 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 I, kind of, I kind of felt like that movie felt more like a box, like a square, even though it was um, te- technically less of a square than, than this, which was precisely a square. Um, and um, third thing, seeing as we were talking about Vincent Cassel, in, is a movie that I saw at the time and enjoyed and haven't heard very much about it since, is um, the 2008 movie uh, Marine, which is a, it was a two-part oh, yeah. movie. Um, I think that is available on Amazon Prime. I'm just checking. I don't know if it's available on Netflix. <laughs> So yeah, check check um, check that out. Pe- people are aware of the the website Google.com, 
Um, that's, that's what I use when find your own record. Yeah, um, yeah and, and and the lighthouse as well. I guess you're going to probably have to wait a little while unless it's on. The lighthouse um, is available on Vudu for example. Is there? Oh, excellent. Buy that online. It's on Vudu and various other places. It's available to buy in America on digital, and it'll be available to buy in Ireland, England, and digital. I think later this month or next month. But Ronan, what would you recommend for listeners? So I guess the the main thing I've been trying to do is expand my world beyond a two kilometer radius, which is is really small, really very small. So I've been reading some travel writing. I recommend for that. Um, and my go to always is Dervla Murphy, an Irish writer. Oh yes, who, uh, is just an absolutely terrific, engaging, funny writer, but has been to some incredible parts of the world. She spent her first forty years, I think, caring for her parents who were in various states of invalidity throughout her life. And once they had both died, she said, "That's it. I'm cycling to India from that's right." And off she went. And uh, for the, I guess, 40 years since then, she has just cycled to various parts of the world and wrote great, entertaining books about it. So I'm uh, I'm currently reading her book about her trip to Nepal, and it's excellent fun. I have about another dozen of her, her books on my shelves that I'm going to be getting through in the next couple of weeks. They're, um, they're great fun. And I think you can still order books on the internet, can't you? That's a thing you can still do. Yeah. yeah. You can get them to your Kindle as well. You can read them digitally as That's well. That's how the kids do it. If you want. <laughs> with the and you can read it in a 1.1 aspect ratio on your phone borrow box as well allows you to uh join your local library and take out ebooks and e-audiobooks um, yeah it's an incredible service yeah so which 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 is great. And it's much easier than actually joining your library <laughs> um, <laughs> it's only otherwise easier. yeah much easier to do it online you don't have to have a utility bill. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember that the uh, one the before the the pandemic happened, Dublin County Library started doing an advertising campaign, which was possibly one of the worst advertising campaigns I've ever seen because it was like it takes a lot of effort to join the library, but it actually doesn't. <laughs> what they wrote, it takes a lot of effort to join the library in giant letters, and then down the bottom in really tiny letters, they said, but no, it actually doesn't. <laughs> Uh, oh dear I feel like you're not really selling your product as well as you might it's, it's a bit it's of like, a shame oh but I never use my library um, in bright in bold letters and then underneath it's like but did you know they have internet yeah. access and also other yeah, yeah. they have a printer you can use it's it's good advertising putting it at the bus because like nobody who owns a car goes to a, 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 I'm sorry yeah. and there you have time to read the poster yeah yeah um, <laughs> And Phil, what would you recommend? <laughs> um, what would I recommend? Well, I was thinking back on Dola, and he, it was just interesting. Like, at the time when I saw Mommy, like, considering that he was probably the most significant French-Canadian filmmaker to emerge since Denis Arcan. Um, but then I got to think, who else might have, uh, or isn't at the time? And I was reading back that his first film, uh, J'ai tué ma mère, I killed my mother, uh, was a big winner at the uh, Genie Awards in Canada when, quite by surprise, it won a lot of awards over a little film called Polytechnique by an upcoming director named Denis Villeneuve. Uh, My recommendation, uh, I've heard Polytechnique is quite good. Uh, I haven't seen it. But I am going to recommend the film, one of the films he made after that. I've, I personally have a love-hate relationship with Villeneuve. Uh, some films of his are very popular and I don't like them. But the one I'm recommending is arguably his best. 
uh, and its enemy. Yes. Is, is a phenomenal psychosexual thriller starring Jake Gyllenhaal as a teacher. Twice. Who discovers he, twice. He discovers he has a doppelganger and he has far more in common with this guy than he could ever imagine. It's arguably Gyllenhaal's best performances. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's shot in this mustard yellow filter. It's, it's both alluring and disgusting. It's got a great supporting cast, Sarah Gadon, Melanie Laurent, and Isabella Rossellini, and an ending which you're not going to forget. The one of the most, yeah. like everybody talks about the <laughs> penultimate shot in this movie, and for very good reason. Uh, I am not quite sure of its of its availability, but you know, Google.com. So, <laughs> enemy, well worth seeking out. Phenomenal film. I second that. It's a very, very, very good film. Surprised I haven't heard of it actually. It, it, it's been, because it's not as if Denny Villeneuve has a lot of movies. No, he actually does. He has two stages of his career as the thing. So he has the first stage of his career, which is the Polytechnic one, where he was kind of like this low up and coming guy. An enemy was the bridge. His probably big breakout hit of that is um, Incendies, which is on the 250. And then Enemy, I think, arrived around the time the kind of like that pivot happened because the pivot happened with the 250s Prisoner. So, and after Prisoners, he became a much more kind of mainstream kind of high profile kind of director films like Arrival films like Blade Runner and films like Dune which I'm pretty sure we're going to be talking about in December not sure whether it'll be 2020 or 2021 but we will be talking about it I suspect but yeah it's so he does have this long history of kind of doing films before the ones that we know him from doing basically um one for you one for me type relationship but like he did all of the ones for me first basically <laughs> seems to be the way to work. He kind of got them in the bank and was then like, yeah, now I get to make blockbusters. Can I do a second recommendation? Cause Phil has, Phil has made me think of something. Go with it. Uh, just on the theme of Canadian films. I've just remembered that my second favorite film from last year, a Canadian film is on Netflix. So since you're all stuck inside and you all have Netflix subscriptions, watch that. It's got a great title too. The body remembers when the world broke open. Oh, and, and for, for anyone wondering if you should watch um, At Eternity's Gate, uh, don't. No. Um, <laughs> it's not great. I was, wondering that, I was wondering that for a while, and I was like, this is probably really good, right? It's not. Yeah. Uh, Willem Dafoe is good. Yeah, right, the rest of the film is. Schnabel needs to lay off the handheld. Yeah. I tend to be very skeptical about films that get an Oscar nomination for Best Actor and nothing else. It's normally not a great song. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like for the, um... It's like a great performance despite the film. It's almost what the award is saying. And, and to bring us back, actually, if you are and you want to watch Denny Villeneuve's Enemy, so if you're living in the States at the moment, it is available to stream on Netflix, on Hoopla, and on Kenobi. Uh, but if you are living in uh, Ireland, uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to buy or rent it either from iTunes or from Google Play, uh, unfortunately. But uh, such is life. Um, in terms of recommendations from myself, I think I've managed to find a nice little Venn diagram that overlap kind of everything that we've talked about so far. We've got shifting aspect ratios. We've got a beloved French performer, uh, Vincent Cassel. And we've even got like uh, Jarvis Cocker's, you know, pulp in the song Common People. I'm really digging the third season of Westworld, uh, which manages to bring all of those things together in a very interesting and exciting way. One of my favorite TV action sequences of the year is actually set to Common People and the actual song version of Common People, as opposed to a kind of an old fashioned cover of it as well, uh, which is quite effective. It's it's an entire action sequence that unfolds from inside a parked car, but uses things like the rear view camera and the rear view mirror in order to kind of like shift its action scenes uh, remarkably well. So I would wholeheartedly recommend that. Um, it is 
probably ended by the time you're listening to this so you can watch it on the sky store um or stream it online on hbo max or hbo go uh, depending on where you're watching as well all right then so if people are looking for a bit more phil and a bit more ronan in their lives where can they find you guys or can they find you guys not really i don't have much of an online presence but hey ho listen to me here listen to me twice so ronan i am as inactive as ever on twitter at baron ronan and i uh log films but don't write about them whatsoever on letterboxd at baron ronan as well so you can see what i'm, I'm watching on, but not read my i'm thoughts. on letterboxd I'll, I'll give you that i'm on letterboxd i was i'm very curious about that is this is this very much because i remember you were like at one stage you were like i'm gonna log everything i do on letterboxd is <laughs> not writing about them your way of fulfilling that it's like if i don't have to write about them i can just log them is that the logic guiding it it's one of those things that goes in at the start of every year. I'm like, I'm going to keep a decent record and, you know, put down some thoughts on everything. But then I just, I, I couldn't be bothered usually. And I do always end up coming back going, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that I gave that three stars, but what do they think about it? <laughs> I have no actual memory of this movie that I gave three stars to. No, not at all. But I can remember the entirety of Street Fighter. Thank you for some reason. Um <laughs> But yeah, you can follow the podcast on the line. We're at, at the 250 on Twitter. Find us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on iTunes. If you like us, please leave a review. It'll help get us in front of or in between more ears, uh, which is very helpful for us as well. We'll be back next week. We're kind of reaching the end of our world tour. So next week, we're going to have the wonderful, our Kurosawa expert, Chris Lavery, will be joining us to discuss Throne of, Bro- Throne of Blood, uh, which is a recent entry on the list from a hot young filmmaker known as Akira Kurosawa. We think we can expect great things from him going forward. And then the week after, we'll be kind of wrapping up our world tour. Phil will be coming back to join us to talk about a movie that is very relevant in ways that we hadn't entirely anticipated when we scheduled it. That is The Seventh Seal, starring Max von Sydow and Mm -hmm. also set during the Black Death as a plague ravages Europe. Um, So, yes. 2020, people. (laughs) Every episode is a special episode, as Andrew described it. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's... um... Carlton Carlton takes speed in this one and nearly dies. Um, uh, yeah, Will Will cries at the end, um, and it, and it has a different ending music. Um, but, but yes, join us next week for that discussion. Thanks Thank very you. much, guys. Bye. 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 we get there Ronan what's your varietal I'm on a Davola and it's very nice I'm afraid I'm on a bog standard Australian cab salve it's doing the trick Phil do you know um, sucker for a cab Hardy's used to make a very nice um, it was like it was a uh, blend it was called umu it's the aboriginal word for like delicious but it, it was it was like an Australian um, kind of attempt at a uh, shadow of the pap. It was like a blend of 
um, what was it, Syrah, Grenache, uh, Morved. I haven't seen it since, but if you ever do see it, I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder. Um, but it was Oh, that's Umu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the crucial question is did any of this wine come from a box? <laughs> and did you just pour it into a box? I have more class than that. That's the. I, I, I'm not. I'm not mommy. <laughs> um, all right, then. We can include all of that. <laughs> so, Andrew Q. 